This is Bedard on Discipleship with Stephen Bedard. The first thing I want to say is that this is the first episode of the podcast with the new name, Bedard on Discipleship. I have changed it from Hope's Reason, and it's going to be a new name, but the same great content. The second thing I wanted to say is this episode is the audio of a video interview I did with Randall Rouser about his new book, Conversations with My Inner Atheist. I hope that you enjoy our conversation and make sure to visit Randall at his website, randallrouser.com, and to pick up his book. Hello, Stephen Bedard here, and I'm really excited about this episode as we're going to be talking to Dr. Randall Rouser. And I'd like to welcome you, Randall, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you today. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about your new book, but before we do that, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do? Thanks for having me, Stephen. So uh, I'm a professor, seminary professor in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, I teach in theology, church history, apologetics, and worldview, written nine books, co-written three more. And I tend to focus a lot in areas of worldview and apologetics and theology in my writing, do some debates, podcasts. Well, I used to podcast, uh, blogging, YouTubing, that sort of stuff. One daughter, two dogs, one wife. That's the quick one. Yeah. Yeah. Now the uh, the name you go by on Twitter and then on your blog is the tentative apologist. What's the story behind that? The, the word atten- uh, tentative. Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, the idea here is that while you can still have your convictions, and I certainly do, but you can also express them in a somewhat of a tentative way as you wrestle through the complexities of issues. There's really a couple pieces there, I think, to this idea, and the one is simply in terms of of how you you hold your beliefs, that you can still have confidence, but also have some room for doubt and questioning. And the other piece is also in terms of engagement with other people, that if you kind of present yourself as being certain of everything, it tends to be off-putting for others, and they're less likely to want to get into a conversation with you. But if you show that you're open to considering new ideas, they might be more open to considering yours. And so I think there's those two pieces to it. And so I think tentative for me is a, has been a sort of helpful way to frame how I interact in apologetic exchanges. I think you're right. I had a conversation recently with someone in my congregation and she asked me what my view was on a very important topic. And I said to her, you know what, that's a good question. And I'm still trying to work through that. I, I explained where I had been coming from and then some of the thoughts that I had, but I I really hadn't landed on a firm position. And I was a little bit worried that she would think, what are you doing? You're you're a pastor. You should have all these answers. But she ended up appreciating the fact that I was still trying to figure these things out. And uh, it actually ended up uh, strengthening our our relationship and and to be able to, uh, to have good conversations from there because I wasn't coming from a place of necessary uh, certainty. Now, there's certain things that I am uh, pretty confident of, but there's a lot of other things that we hold pretty loosely. So, yeah. Yeah, I I agree 100%. And now some people, again, are very certain in their convictions, and that's fine. I don't think people have to necessarily question stuff, but I just think some people are 
wired in such a way that they ask questions and they want to explore and, and that's there's room for that too and i think that we're we can have a healthy community if you've got both sides represented for sure mm -hmm. now the book that you wrote is called conversations with my inner atheist and before we talk about that i was looking at your list of books and uh, atheist appears quite often in that there's an ongoing theme there of uh, different books that you have written in fact I first encountered you, uh, you were recommended to me by a, uh, an atheist uh, who came to me and said, have you heard of this Randall Rouser? And I'm like, no, I've never heard of him. And so he lent uh, me one of your books and said, you need to read this uh, because he, he found your, uh, your work not necessarily completely convincing because he's still an atheist today, but he did find it... Um, he was more willing to read what you were saying than what a lot of other apologists were saying. So uh, just to say that's another atheist uh, connection there, but uh, you, you do seem to have this interest in, t in talking uh, with and about atheism. Yeah, it, it has sort of been an ongoing theme. Now, I think probably only 5%, 6% of the North American population is avowedly atheistic, but I think the broader skepticism of organized religion that often comes under the moniker of spiritual but not religious. That's very culturally influential. And even the relatively small number of atheists, I think that in terms of naturalism or the pursuit of natural over supernatural explanations in reality, that is also very culturally influential. And so I find that often I've just been pulled into debates and interactions with people that are atheists, skeptical, humanist, you know, agnostic, that whole sort of spectrum, it, it certainly comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed some of the appearances you've made on the Unbelievable podcast where you've had to defend the atheist position. Uh, that was uh, quite quite interesting to, to see uh, the reversal of roles there and then have the atheist uh, try to defend the, the Christian uh, position. Uh, that must have been a, an a interesting experience for you to be able to do that. Yeah, I've done, uh, I think, three devil's advocate debates now where I take on the role of debating the alternative view. And I do really enjoy those because there's no better way to learn what your opponent believes or your interlocutor or whatever term you want to use. There's no better way to learn that than to commit to be the one defending it. And uh, generally, I find that, that when I've offered atheists the invitation to debate and defend Christianity, uh, they're rarely interested in doing so. So I'd like to do more of those kinds of debates because I find them to be a, a rich way of really getting into the arguments and also challenging my atheist friends to take a real close look at why people are Christians and see if you can defend that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm a big advocate of that kind of, of debate. Mm -hmm. Now, your book, Conversations with My Inner Atheist, as I was reading it, I thought you could read this two ways. You could read that as a conversation with a skeptic. Like you could imagine uh, yourself talking with another person about these things. And then uh, also uh, reading it as the, the title implies that this is the, the atheist in you. These are the questions that are being asked. So uh, with that book and the statements by Mia being uh, my inner atheist, which I appreciated that, um, how much of that really was the uh, the questions that you had uh, inside and how much was based on just conversations you've had with other skeptics? 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure there's a way to to kind of pry those apart because um, they, they're just so seamlessly interwoven with one another. You know, you hear something that is raised as an issue by somebody, you are also wrestling with that yourself. Those two objections kind of mingle and it becomes a deeper objection. And so I think just time and again that that the voice of Mia within the book is both my internal wrestling with various topics and also as I've encountered others outside the Christian tradition or within the Christian tradition who are wrestling with it. And it just all kind of becomes this one voice. So it's a good question. I'm, I'm just not sure how to answer it. Mm -hmm. But so I think it's probably both and in most cases. Now, you were talking a little bit before about the role of doubt. And a lot of Christians debate that. Uh, some would say that doubt is the enemy of faith and we need to avoid that as much as possible. And then others would see it as a healthy aspect of faith. I know in my early years, uh, I spent some time as an atheist uh, from my mid-teens to my early 20s. And so skepticism was a, a big part of my experience. And then I found myself in a Pentecostal church, and I think you had that, the Pentecostal uh, background mm -hmm. as well. And when I would mention that I had questions and doubts, uh, their immediate role or immediate response was to say, well, you know, we need to cast out the spirit of doubt. That's what we need to do. Rather than answering my questions, uh, they would just uh, lay hands on me and, and pray that the doubt would go away which uh, really wasn't that effective. And it took a, a long time uh, for me to figure these things out on my own. Now, I, I would say that's not necessarily where all Pentecostals are. And even that particular congregation has come a long way in, in 25 years. But uh, how, uh, how should Christians see doubt in their lives? When, it, when a Christian experiences something uh, that makes them question, should they get worried that they're on that slippery slope to becoming an atheist? Or is there a better way to, to look at that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I give a story in, in one of my books. Uh, I, I talk about how there, there's like a bush plane in the northern, in the Arctic that crashes into the frozen forest. And these two guys are fly out of the plane and they're left in the snowbank. And then they've got the distress call out. So they're waiting for help to arrive. And the one guy says, and I'm in so much pain and I'm so cold and I feel all my joints are aching. And the other guy says, interesting, I don't feel anything at all. And then he just drifts off to sleep in the snowbank. And of those two guys, I always say it's, it's the guy who's feeling pain that's in much better shape than the guy who can't feel anything anymore and he just drifts off to sleep. And just as we can think about pain as a helpful signal that your body is communicating with you about certain stimuli in your environment, so doubts can be helpful stimuli for a living faith that you can, they can kind of highlight areas you need to think about more and things you need to wrestle with. And if you don't feel any doubt, it doesn't necessarily mean you're in bad shape, but it could mean you're in bad shape. Just like not feeling any pain could mean you're in bad shape. So I think the first thing we need to recognize is doubt does have a healthy role in the life of the Christian. I, I recognize as well, however, that there are such things as sort of neurotic doubts that just get to a point where they can become debilitating. And I've met people like that. I mean, Martin Luther, to some degree, may have been like that as he struggled constantly with, and even after his tower experience where he encountered justification anew, he still struggled with the idea that he was really of God's elect. 
And, and there can come a point where we too can just struggle to such a point that it becomes debilitating. And those are the moments I think where we need the church to gather around us, maybe offer us some comfort and guidance and assurance and the spirit can testify to our spirit. And, and so we need to seek that. But there is a role for doubt, I think, in the life of the Christian and the Christian community. But there's also a point where it can become unhelpful. And, and so that's why we need the wider community and, and we need to cry out to God in those moments. Mm-hmm. Now, for you personally, when you are just laying in bed in the middle of the night and a thought comes to mind that really shakes you in terms of, of faith, is there a particular question or issue, that, the one that really kind of rattles you? And I realize that's a hard question, so I, I will, uh, I'll give my uh, answer after you give yours. So I, I'm going to be as uh, vulnerable as you, but sure. is, is there one thing that makes you question the most? For, for me, I mean, I think, not surprisingly, when it really comes down to it, the, the problem of evil and suffering in the world in its multiple manifestations is, is probably the deepest thing that I sort of face and struggle with. It's, it's both, the, for example, the problem of, of you know, little children dying of, of cancer or, I mean, a little child being sexually victimized by a predatory adult. It's also the, the evil and, and the suffering, I should say, of, of nature, that there is so much suffering just woven into the very fabric of nature. And, and then suffering and, and evil as it encounters us, let's say, within the biblical text. Uh, so portraits of God within scripture that, that I struggle with in terms of understanding how to reconcile God apparently commanding the eradication of entire populations in Canaan, or, or God commanding punishments such as stoning and the amputation of hands with, within the Torah, which today we would consider to be inhuman crimes against humanity and, and not acceptable in a compassionate model of jurisprudence. So it's such a multiple manifestation of, of evil and suffering that I, I think about. And I, I'm just thankful that, that it hasn't hit me with the depth of personal, uh, the personal grip that it has some other people. So I'll just give one quick example. Probably about 13, 14 years ago, my daughter was missing for about an hour when she was about five years old, four years old. And I went into meltdown mode. I mean, I couldn't think. And we called the police and they did a sweep of the house and they actually found her sleeping had fallen asleep under a bed. And um, so she was fine. But I often think about the parents who have lost a child, right? And, those, and, and the, the, the hours turn into days, weeks, and months. And maybe they, they find that child's body a year later in the woods or something. And how do you come back from that? I don't know. Like, I don't know what would happen to my Christian faith if I did go through that. Uh, some people have a stronger faith as a result, but some lose their faith. And I would hope that I could f endure that by God's grace, but, but my compassion and heart certainly goes out to people who have experienced that kind of suffering and have found a shattered faith as a result. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's difficult for, for many people. For myself, I think uh, it's the idea of uh, salvation in Jesus alone, which I accept. I, I have no problem with that. But when I then think about that historically, you know, Jesus mm -hmm. has, has died, 
Uh, he's been raised. He's ascended. The uh, Holy Spirit's come down. The church has started. But what about all those indigenous people in North and South America? What about all the people in China who are not going to, there's no possibility for them to hear the name of Jesus for uh, many centuries. Uh, well, I mean, not China, not necessarily, but uh, certainly in uh, North and South America for many centuries. And then when they do hear about Jesus, it doesn't come in a, in a great way anyways. Uh, so those are the kind of questions for me that, uh, that shake me uh, in, the, in the middle of the night. And yeah. there are times you just have to, to say, you know what, I don't understand it all, but mm-hmm. I'm going to have to hold on to, to what, uh, what I do know. Now, you wrote this book as a, as a dialogue, and uh, I was curious if you were influenced by Plato at all. Did you like that style of, uh, of writing? And I know there's a, a few other apologists have done that kind of thing as well, as opposed to just saying, here's, uh, here's the question, and now I'm going to write uh, a chapter in response. Yeah, I've, I wrote one other book in this style with, with a fictional character in a coffee shop. And I also did a dialogue debate book with an actual uh, atheist where we went back and forth in the manner of a dialogue. So I certainly have found that approach to writing and to communicating ideas attractive. Certainly I've I've read my Plato back in my university days and it was impactful then. Since then, I mean, I've also read my share of Peter Kreeft in particular. and, And so Peter Kreeft's approach, he's often used that Socratic model as well. And I do think it's a very effective way to cover a lot of ground, communicate ideas in a succinct and engaging way, and in a way that it's not just sort of in the seminar classroom, but it's the way you encounter ideas in the realm of life, the way that they kind of just come in the midst of a meandering conversation and suddenly you're wrestling with big questions. So I I am attracted to, to the Socratic dialogue sort of model. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Kreeft is who I was thinking of too when I was uh, when I was reading that. I, I mm-hmm. recognize that. Now uh, we don't really have time to go through all the the chapters there. You uh, there were quite a few issues, a pretty wide variety, and uh, some of them, as I read, uh, coming from a different background, I thought oh, I, that's never really bothered me. But then other ones certainly I, I saw as being. Uh, applicable to my my own experience one of the ones that uh that i was drawn to though as a pastor is the chapter that you had on uh lgbtq and same-sex marriage and uh especially in terms of where the the church is at um that like in in my denomination um there would be pastors who would be absolutely affirming of LGBTQ, you know, would not uh, hesitate to uh, include uh, people of that community in all levels of leadership. And uh, just, it would just would not be an issue at all. Others would take a a far different stance uh, who would uh, make it probably very uncomfortable for anyone uh, who identifies as gay to be in their, in their congregation. And then, of course, many that would be somewhere in the middle. And this is definitely something that um, I have worried about for the future of the church in that uh, how do we uh, hold these tensions together? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Baptist, as you are, and, and part of the, the Baptist uh, 
um, tradition, and this is what drew me to Baptist, uh, was the, the idea of soul liberty and, and, and trying to figure these things out on your own. And I'm not saying that there's a, that the truth is all relative, that we're, you know, all sides are true, but we don't necessarily know. Um, we, ha we have to have a, a sense of humility here. But I really have a lot of concern about the, the future uh, of the church and, and how do we uh, respond in uh, compassionate ways uh, that are truthful as well and uh, having having room to uh, agree to disagree on certain things. So I was wondering if you could address that just a little bit. Yeah. So I guess the first thing is, in some ways, it, it's maybe a little unusual to have a chapter on that topic included within a book that's broadly surveying sort of apologetics issues. But in my experience, uh, dissatisfaction with how the church has dealt with the LGBT question is one of the biggest factors under which many people leave the church today. So I think uh, the place of a conversation about it is really important within a book that's concerned with apologetics broadly. Um, and so my approach with, within that uh, chapter is not just to give the right answer, quote unquote, but to be able to set up uh, a framework to understand how it is that Christians come to reasonably disagree about this. I mean, I can go back to, it was 1999 when I went to England to do my PhD in theology. And it was the fall of 99 at the small Anglican church that we were going to that I first met a Christian who was gay affirming. I, I just never encountered a Christian that had that perspective before. I didn't frankly know there were such people. I guess I was a little sheltered. I mean, uh, by that time going as a, into a PhD program, I just wasn't aware that there were people like Boswell and Mullencott who had been arguing for gay affirming positions for a couple decades by that point. Well, now in, in the 20 some years since then, I mean, this is a question that is very much on the table. And so at the very least, we need to understand how it is that Christians come to disagree about it. And so I go through the, the reasons as to the role of scripture, but also other factors, including experience that do inform how Christians and everybody reasons theologically. So in, experience informs our reading and our engagement with those key texts, such as Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, and our appropriation of the Torah, the law of, in, in, for example, Leviticus 18. And so we have, to, we have to then come to it that it's not simply a matter of who's being faithful to scripture and who isn't, but appreciate that people in good conscience can come to different conclusions on a particular issue. And then I kind of try to cap off that discussion by saying uh, we really need to, to have a place for hospitality. And I give the example of Pope Francis back in 2013 in his first year in the pontificate, he was uh, chosen person of the year by the advocate which is the leading lgbt magazine of the world he had not changed the catholic church's position on lgbt issues but he had begun to speak in a voice of compassion and a sort of invitation rather than just a, a censoring negative voice and that alone was enough for the advocate to say hey you're going to be person of the year because so often these are people who've been marginalized by the wider christian community and hurt and, and there is, frankly, a lot of hatred and, and fear and mistrust of gay people. And we need to recognize that with, within the church community. And so we do have some healing to do, and we have to learn, among other things, greater hospitality. And I think that would go a long way 
toward addressing a lot of the skepticism about Christianity today and a lot of the problem of people leaving the church over this question? Yeah, I definitely think it's an apologetic issue. Uh, I have uh, some children in the uh, like uh, early teens and uh, you know, they have lots of people in their classes who identify as gay or bisexual or transsexual. And uh, for them to be told that the, the church has no place for their friends who are like that. Uh, in fact, we had a conversation recently. They had no idea that there were churches that weren't affirming. It, it never, uh, it never came up. Uh, they, they just couldn't see how a, a church could be that way. Now we haven't taken a stand one, one way or uh, another. Uh, it's not something that we've, uh, we've dealt with uh, directly. But uh, yeah, it, it, if they had, if they had to see that the church was either uh, um, against that, uh, against the everyone who was gay, that that's what you had to accept in order to be a Christian, I think that that would be a huge stumbling block for them, at least at this, this stage in their life. So it's a, mm. it's a very difficult thing. Now, in, and another aspect of apologetics, though, uh, and this comes up, I think, in some other chapters as well, that some skeptics will say, um, if the Bible is true, and if Christianity is true, why do Christians have different interpretations here it should all be the, exactly the same if all of these things are true which uh, I find a little bit puzzling because as soon as you start reading anything in any other area like anything non-religious whether it's science or history any discipline that's out there you will find all kinds of disagreements uh, about that we would never say well history uh, has got to be false because there's different interpretations or science is false uh, because you know, we do, there's, when you look at the, uh, say, the, the beginning of the universe, purely from a, like a non-theological perspective, uh, scientists um, have, don't have a full agreement as to what's going on. We would not say, well, then, you know, the universe didn't begin or, uh, mm -hmm. or we can't even talk about it, that that's an illegitimate subject. So it, it seems strange to me that uh, religion is the one area that has to have full agreement in order for it to be true. Is that something that you've encountered as well? Yeah, for sure. There's, uh, I mean, often it, it sort of comes up in conversation uh, with atheists or someone saying, well, there's 33,000 Christian denominations. So, uh, you know, which one is the right one? Uh, and that, you know, that actually is a statistic that comes from David Barrett's World Encyclopedia, World Christian Encyclopedia. So, he does kind of estimate approximately 30,000 denominations. Now, there's a lot more you could say about that. A lot of those are administrative differences rather than theological ones. And, of course, there's a huge shared wealth of doctrine and practice between all those, virtually all of those groups. So a lot of the diversity at first, you know, when you get down to it at a deeper level, there's unity or unanimity on essential issues. But, but here's a, just a way to kind of present that skeptic's objection. They're, they're saying, well, um, let's think about Christian doctrine as analogous to the escape route for a hotel in case of fire. Um, now, what happens if you go to different hotel rooms and different hotel rooms all have different escape route, route maps and they appear to contradict one another at key points? What would that say about the management of the hotel? 
right? Why doesn't the hotel management make sure there's just one clear escape route for everybody? Un unless you adopt a relativist position, right? And, and you do say, well, relative to this hotel room, this escape route works. Relative to this hotel room, this one works. But if you wanna say no on these issues, there's one right way to think about it. Well, then there should just be one map in all the rooms. And yet within Christianity, to some degree, you get different maps. And so if you look at it that way, I can appreciate how it could be seen as a problem. Uh, and and there, there isn't a simple solution, I think. I mean, I did uh, begin to say one here where well, we can kind of go down and see the deeper unanimity in doctrine. Uh, I think one other thing I would say that's quite important is that at the heart of Christianity is, is not the ability to pass an exam of doctrine. It's not like you get to the gates and St. Peter's there with a theology exam and wants to make sure you pass the exam. Rather, the heart of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not ultimately up to me to say precisely which doctrines are required and which are not in order for a person to be in relationship with Jesus Christ, for him to have met them in a salvific way. I can uh, look at uh, doctrine in terms of imposing healthy boundaries for the visible institution of the church, particularly as regards certain levels of participation. So for example, if you want to be the pastor, I expect this degree of assent to doctrine to be part of the package. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to say, well, you've got to believe X, Y, and Z in order to be saved and, and have a relationship with Jesus. Because uh, that, of course, would just raise the question, well, then which doctrines do you need? And what age do you need to have them? Because a four-year-old has different cognitive abilities than a 14-year-old. And, and you just get into an endless real problem if you want to go down that route. So I'm, I'm happy to leave that in the mercy and love of God as he relates to specific individuals. Uh, and to say, I think there is some uh, deeper unity that exists beyond the superficial uh, diversity and disagreement. Mm -hmm. it, it always, uh, I, again, confused me about that because my, my own experience, I grew up Anglican, went Pentecostal, now Baptist, which are three very different traditions. Uh, but I, I don't see them as a movement of, I was in a, a, a false church and then I got into a slightly better church and now I've found the true church. Uh, they're just totally different traditions. And yes, there are different ways and, and different doctrines in certain areas, but I recognize it all as being uh, Christian. And uh, as a pastor, I spend a lot of time doing things with uh, pastors of other churches, and uh, it's been a, a pretty uh, long-term part of my spiritual life to interact with people of all different traditions. And so it's, uh, it is a little bit strange, but I guess uh, coming from the outside, I can, I can see where that's coming from. So we've talked a little bit about the doubts. Um, you, you're laying in bed again. You've just had that doubt that uh, hit your mind. Now, what's that one thing that is going to reassure you about the truth of Christianity, the, the thing that will, will ground you in having a strong faith? What's the, the, the one aspect, the one uh, concept that, that holds you? Well, uh, for me personally, a, a big thing is to reframe the doubt itself. So the doubt is initially often seems as an enemy, as a problem to be solved. Uh, but the way I like to think of it, I sort of touched upon this earlier, that, that doubts can be thought of as sort of pains to the body, that they're showing that you're engaging with the environment actually in a healthy way. 
And to, to follow that through, uh, one thing I like to point out is that the very name of Israel, which goes back to Jacob's wrestling with the angel and then receiving this name, it, it encapsulates the idea of the person, the community that is willing to wrestle with God. And the very idea of wrestling with God and one's willingness to do so is a sign of intimacy. It is a sign of closeness with this individual. And if we are willing to accept and wrestle through our doubts rather than sort of pretend they're not there, I think that ability to wrestle with our doubts is a sign of the strength of our faith itself, uh, that we are willing to have these hard conversations with God, like the psalmist. When, when the psalmist gets angry at God, when the psalmist questions whether God has been faithful, when the psalmist cries out as to why he suffers, that is not a sign of impiety. That is a sign of his intimacy with God, that he's willing to have those hard conversations. And I would just say the same thing when we have doubts, is that we should view that as a sign of our intimacy with God. And hopefully then we can begin to reframe and reinterpret what often has seemed to be an enemy of faith, but in fact, I think is a way into a deeper faith. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, this has been great, uh, Randall. And I, I really highly recommend conversations with my inner atheist, because we all do have an inner atheist, whether we uh, talk to Mia very often or not. And uh, we, we might try to push that voice down, but it's, it's there. And so this is a, a helpful resource for people to, to work through. And I think it's also helpful for non-Christians just to, to see that, um, that Christians don't necessarily come from a, a place of full certainty and that there, there is a strength in that and that we're, we're open to asking those hard questions. So I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to write the book and then to talk about it today. Where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me online. Uh, my website's randallrouser.com. I'm also on Twitter, YouTube. And of course, you can find the book at Amazon as, as with probably 9 million other books. So yeah. thanks a lot for having me though, Stephen. It's been a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I hope that people will check you out at your website. Uh, you have lots of great uh, content there. I've uh, visited you there often. And I hope that people will come visit me too at stephenjbedard.com. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bedard on Discipleship. Please visit me at stephenjbedard.com and consider supporting the podcast by downloading free audiobook with a free trial of Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com slash hopesreason. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash hopes reason a free audiobook a free trial you can't go wrong thanks again for listening and god bless